Hi, I'm Jess. And I'm Nina. And you're listening to Slice Slice of Murder. Murder. episode it is we didn't talk about this before we started oh no all right just checked episode 24 that was a close one (laughs) um yeah i feel like we haven't recorded for a couple weeks we've been kind of lazy but we've had things to do no we've had a busy yeah we actually have yeah We've had a busy few weeks, I feel like. Yeah, and we just have a busy month overall. Yeah, I know. March is a very busy month. Mm-hmm. I feel like I was, I'm doing something every single weekend. Yeah, which you is had n- your bachelorette, yeah. and it's my birthday. Which is nice, but it's also like, it's like a lot going on. Yeah, it's hectic. But it's making it go fast. This is our last full week of school this week, or at least for me. It's my last full week of school before spring break. Well, mine too, so, but that's okay, because my spring break is the next week. week. <laughs> yeah, but like I don't have a full week next week, and then I don't have a full week the next week, and then I have spring break. Yay. And then like once I come back from spring break, it's five weeks, and then it's testing, and then it's four weeks, and then it's the end of school. Yeah, that it is feels so like fast. Like the end of school is just around the corner, and I'm so excited. I know. It's so fast. I feel like this year went a lot faster than last year. Yeah, this I is why I love second semester because it just feels like a breeze yeah and it's getting nicer like it was actually nice out today yeah it got really warm and i was wearing a Uh full-on like rain jacket yeah i know (laughs) it it was really nice today um so let's uh get started with your rose and thorn jessica all right so i'll start with my thorn so my thorn is that this weekend was daylight savings and (laughs) i feel like it just threw me off I was so tired yesterday, and then just waking up today. Like, I got four hours of sleep yeah, yesterday. Yeah, on Sunday. Yeah. To Saturday, wait, Saturday to Sunday night. Yeah. Yeah. I know, I was just saying, I was, like, texting my boyfriend after we went out for your birthday. Mm-hmm. I texted my boyfriend, like, and I was not yet going to bed, and he was already up for the day. Well, like, it was, so like, so funny. late, just because, like, we, like, moved an hour, and he woke up really early. I was like, this is so depressing. <laughs> not <laughs> I don't like this <laughs> yeah so that's part of my rose is mm-hmm. that we went out for my birthday and I got to celebrate and see a lot of my friends that I hadn't seen in a while mm-hmm. so it was fun um yeah it was really fun it was a fun time I really enjoyed it um my rose I'll start with my rose because then it goes into my thorn I completely changed my rose and my thorn from what I said it was about a minute ago. And we never discussed this just today. <laughs> um, um, so my rose was that I got to go to one of my best friend's bachelorette parties in Nashville two weeks ago. And that was really fun. It was like, I just got to see like a lot of people that I was like, haven't seen all in one place since like high school, basically, or like mm-hmm. early college, just because like now we all live in different cities and we just don't really see each other that often. But we all got to go for her bachelorette party, and that was really fun. Like, those are, like, my, like, closest friends from, like, the age of, like, 12 through 18. So I feel like it was nice to, like, yeah, to, get back you know, together with them and, and things like that. So that was really, really fun. Um, but my thorn is in relation to that. 
because I was flying from LA to Nashville and I was having a layover in Chicago and I went, I flew out of Chicago and I was flying to Nashville and they turned my whole plane around and then I got sent back to Chicago and then I had to sit in Chicago for like eight hours while I was waiting for the next flight to Nashville and that was horrible. Yeah, I couldn't believe that when you told me. But it just sounded bizarre. I know. I think there was like strong winds or something. Yeah. But what I just I feel like figured out is that Nashville gets like tornadoes or hurricanes or something oh. very windy. Like I feel like I didn't realize that Nashville is like kind of in the like it's not in the Midwest, but it's like almost in the mm-hmm. Midwest. You know, I feel like I never realized it's that far over as yeah. it is. I feel like I always think it's like more east than it is, but it's yeah. not really like it's actually like pretty far over. So I feel like I didn't realize that they had those, like, weather patterns there. But I guess they do. And now, Alex Earl is in Nashville at the same I bar know. that I was at a week later. She definitely saw your story. She definitely copied me. Yeah, she copied you. <laughs> you influenced her. <laughs> I did. I did. I actually did. Imagine you two would have been there at the same time. Oh, my God. I would have freaked so out. Crazy. I would have freaked out, actually. She's my idol. I mean, like, oh my and you're god! You're both from New Jersey. Yeah, and I could have been like, we live like 15 minutes away from each other in New Jersey. And then you would be let's hang out this summer. Best friends with her. She probably goes out in New Jersey. I'm gonna go find yeah. her this summer. I really am. <laughs> then I want to be best friends with her, and then I can become an influencer, and then I can just do nothing except for make post TikToks and pictures all day. <laughs> and do brand deals. And do brand deals. Travel. And get yeah, and go to Dubai. With you should do that. makeup brands. Okay, that's going to be my summer goal. Everybody stay tuned for how Yay. that turns out. <laughs> Probably will. <laughs> well, yes, we're manifesting it. Yeah, I have lucky girl syndrome. <laughs> I was literally telling this woman, I, I met this woman on the flight to Nashville, and we both got, we were both supposed to be on the same flight, and we both got turned around, and we both were sitting in this airport together, and she was like, I don't think we're going to get off the standby list for this flight tonight. I was like, yes, we are. I have a lucky girl syndrome. We're getting on that flight. And she's like, what are you talking about? But then we did. She's probably like thinking about you. I know, probably. We became like best friends. Like, I kid you not. They were like calling people for standby and we were like standing up and down, like jumping together. And we're like, oh my God. (laughs) I love that. I know. That's so cute. You're both solo travelers. Yeah. She was also a teacher. That's funny. Yeah. All right. Well, for our sweet this week, or sweet treat, <laughs> well, we have Melissa's, well, my birthday cake that Melissa made. It was pretty good, actually. I just had a little piece downstairs. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't want to eat any right now. Yeah, it was really <laughs> I good. I had dinner. It was good. It was like funfetti. I love funfetti. So, mm-hmm. 10 out of 10. Yeah, I agree. It was very good. All right. So, let's get into it. <laughs> Um, I feel like this is going to be maybe shorter. I don't want to say that and then it ends up being the same length. Uh-huh. But this is a case of Charles Manson. So there will be some mentions of child abuse and murder. Mm-hmm. So Charles Manson was a twisted individual with racist ideologies. He believed his bloody killings would spark would be the spark to ignite the revolution against black people. He gathered followers for his cult and somehow convinced his followers to go on a killing spree, resulting in first-degree murder convictions. And one of the strangest cases 
the state of California has witnessed. Yeah, I feel like I've listened to a couple um a couple podcasts about this. I yeah. just think it's like it's I had not really heard much about it, and uh-huh. I was like, oh, I'm going to do a small case this week. <laughs> it's and actually then, a pretty big one. Yeah, someone was like, yeah, that is a pretty big case. I feel like I'm also doing a pretty big case this week. Okay. But, yeah, like kind of like a more high-profile one. Yeah, but I still feel like maybe people have not listened to it, even if they mm-hmm. like maybe heard the name. Mm-hmm. They don't really know the full story. Right. But... No, I'm excited. Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about Charles's background, mm-hmm. um, cults that he started, his beliefs, and then kind of like what led to his arrest, a little bit of the trial, and then what happened after. Okay. Yeah, so Manson was born on November 12th, 1934 in Cincinnati, Ohio. His mother was 16 at the time of his birth. And his father was never identified. His mother was known for heavy drinking. So this resulted in Manson's uh, experiencing neglect and abuse. His mother was absent a lot of the time, including when she was convicted of an armed robbery. And she was given a five-year prison sentence. So during this time, Charles was left with relatives or in foster care. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. I feel like we know how, like, fo- I mean, even today, like, how foster care treats a lot of kids that, like, go through it. Like, I feel like a lot of foster kids say they didn't have a good experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, today there's more regulations than there used to be, so there are definitely, like, success stories with foster care, but I feel like back then it was definitely not as regulated. So it's just sad that, like, I feel like from the very beginning he didn't really have a chance at, like, having a healthy I guess, normal, normal life. like, upbringing or, like, way of showing affection or, like, connections to people in his life, you know? Like, that was kind of, like, ruined from the beginning. Yeah, and then in parentheses I had, we know about what happened to kids in foster care. Mm-hmm. Exactly <laughs> what you said. Uh, but, yeah, so unfortunately, he did experience abuse in foster care and also at his aunt and uncle's house because mm-hmm. they were both physically abusive they were really strict mm-hmm. disciplinarians which caused manson to often want to run away and this led him to get in trouble with the law leading to juvenile detention centers mm-hmm. so in 1947 manson's mother was released from prison and took custody of him, but she still maintained her same lifestyle. Like, she made no changes. She was still right. drinking, like, committing petty crimes, like, shoplifting. Yeah, and it's like when you, like, grow up with that as almost an example of, like, how he believes an adult should behave. I just feel like it really stunts your ability to set different goals for yourself you know like unless you have a positive influence in your life outside of your parents because not everybody grows up with like the best parents Mm -hmm. but it's like if you don't have a positive influence outside of that I feel like it can be really really difficult for you to 
to change yeah. your life or like your lifestyle because it's like this is how you grow up like ex- like learning what's like what you think is normal this is like what you see in your life every mm-hmm. single day and I feel like if you're not exposed to kind of the opportunities outside of that then it can be very very difficult for you to not follow along that same sort of path so this caused Manson to display violent and man- manipulative tendencies from a very young age Because like you said, like this was his life at home. Mm -hmm. It was pretty much all that he saw. And he was known to manipulate his classmates Mm -hmm. in the first grade. He manipulated some kids to hurt other kids that he didn't like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel like it's like also almost like an intention kind of thing. Like if you're being neglected and you have no way of... I guess getting that attention from people you care about, I feel like you're a lot more likely to go to like these extreme ends to get that attention, even if it's bad attention. Like you're just more likely to act out in search of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Manson was expelled from school and he started stealing and committing burglaries to survive. So this was also all that he knew from his family since his mom had been committing petty crime ever since he was born. Mm-hmm. And, like, his aunt and uncle, too. So this was just kind of, like, what he grew up with. So he's... I feel like when you see something, mm-hmm. you just, like, start to do it. Especially, like you said, if it's at a young age. Mm-hmm. So at 13, he was sent to a reform school in Indiana where he was subjected to brutal treatment and sexual abuse by older boys. Mm -hmm. And the next 19 years were a parade of crimes, apprehensions, incarcerations, even escapes, and paroles. And most of the crimes were nonviolent, except for one major exception, being Manson's 1952 rape of a boy while holding a razor to his throat. And was this when he was in school? Yeah, right? this was at okay. the reform school. Yeah, I feel like I remember that mm-hmm. being told. Yeah. So, but the rest were, you know, not so serious mm-hmm. until that. And a lot of psychiatrists viewed Manson as a very emotionally upset youth, slick, but extremely sensitive and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, they referred to him as having homosexual and assaultive tendencies mm-hmm. and having an unstable personality but being potentially able to straighten himself out at this time okay so when manson was in jail for forging a treasury check he was released on march 21st 1967 and manson actually begged officials to allow him to stay because he said that was his home. Yeah, like, I feel like when you're... Because, I mean, it sounds like he was in prison from, like, what, the time he was... Or, like, in and out of prison from, like, what? Like, he's, like, 13 or 14, For 19 right? years. Yeah, like, in and out that's prison. just... I feel like that's... When you start to look at being in prison as the majority of your life, and before that, like... He was in places where people didn't want him there, you know? So it almost is like it became a place that at least he could rely on some sort of security or some sort of routine or some sort of, like, yeah. stability, you know? Like, he knew he was going to wake up and do the same thing every single day. He probably, like, almost grew to think of, like, that stability as more appealing to him mm-hmm. than, like, not being able to, like, think, you know, 
waking up and not knowing if he was like what his next meal is going to be or like trying to like run away from his home you know or thinking about things like that i'm not surprised yeah and then to add on to that it's where he discovered his passion for music so he would get Mm -hmm. to play his guitar Mm -hmm. in jail and then i think he just had like friends and Yeah. yeah this is where he had everything he needed yeah so he begged officials but unfortunately they were not able to comply so he was released in san francisco okay and soon after this is when the family had begun to form and you just think about like you know what if like they were able to help him like Mm -hmm. after being released from jail yeah there's like a program that he could have joined have joined yeah that offered the same sort of stability and like kind of support like mental health services but that's not jail you know like i feel like there should be something like that where you know you're not in prison but maybe you do are like are living in a house that is state sponsored like Mm -hmm. with a therapist like it's still sort of the same daily routine every day that functions like effectively in the same manner, you know, you wake yeah. up and you do the same thing every day. You have a schedule every single day that you can expect and that you can come to, like, kind of grow to expect. Like, you can grow to know what you're going to do every single day. But it's, like, not a prison, you know? Like, mm-hmm. you offer more mental health support and stuff like that. I feel like that would be really helpful. Yeah. Especially for people like this that, yeah, that are kind of relying on that structure to stay, like, keep themselves in yeah, in, like, a healthy mindset. Yeah, but unfortunately, the system sucks, and he just ha- yeah. he's just released, and this is why a lot of people commit crimes after they're right, released. Right, because it's like, you, they're offered no support. Like, what are you supposed to do? Like, if you get... Like, you, it's already you can't get a hard job. to get a job. Yeah, like, you, people, I feel like, are so stigmatized against mm-hmm. if they've committed a crime. You're not going to get a job. You're yeah. not going to get approved for... much housing like what are you supposed to do it's like it's really not surprising that people get desperate over these things because there's really not a lot of options for them to go down Mm -hmm. like not a lot of legal options yeah so it's like if you're gonna try and survive you're gonna try and survive by whatever means necessary especially like even more so if you have a family that you're trying to provide for you know Mm -hmm. yeah and manson originally had moved to california to pursue music originally and he became influenced by LSD, hippie culture, and the Beatles. Okay. So he, having learned to play the guitar in prison, Manson arrived in Los Angeles with hopes of securing a recording contract through some of the big names in the industry at the time. So he did his best to wow artists like Neil Young and the Mamas and the Papas. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with it? I am, yes. <laughs> I actually have a Neil Young album. Oh. I, my, it was my dad's album, and I have it in my oh, room. That's so cool. And the Mamas and the Papas are like a California dreaming. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. Wait, what? Yeah. It's California. You know that song? California dreaming? Yeah. yeah. No, that's who sings it. Okay. Yes. I, yeah, I knew the names are familiar, mm-hmm. but I'm not super familiar with their music. But the Beatles, yes, I do know the Beatles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> His, so he tried to wow them, but his idiosyncratic folk music failed to generate any enthusias- enthusiasm from them until he was introduced to Dennis Wilson mm-hmm. of the Beach Boys 
who saw talent in Manson's playing. Oh, so he was actually good at what yeah. he did. Okay. I didn't know well, that. at least Dennis Wilson thought he was good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's kind of surprising because I feel like music was pretty folky back then. Like... Yeah. Like, right? I feel like during the 70s, that was kind of a resurgence of folk music or, like, intertwining folk music with pop music, you know? Mm-hmm. So Wilson allowed Manson and several of, quote, his girls, who had by now begun coalescing around him because they believed he was a guru with prophetic powers. Okay. Well, I feel like you can be good at music and not be a guru with prophetic powers. Yes, me too. I feel like there's definitely a line. There, I feel like there's definitely a separation between those <laughs> things. <laughs> And then Wilson eventually kicked them out after they began causing trouble. But Manson later accused the Beach Boys of reworking one of his songs and including it on their 1969 album, 2020, without crediting him. I feel like I don't believe that. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) You're like, nope. (laughs) I'm not buying in. (laughs) I'm using my prophetic powers to uh, prophesy that that didn't happen. (laughs) So this is when Manson created a cult around himself called the family that he hoped to use to bring about the Armageddon. Armageddon. Yeah, Armageddon. Armageddon, which is the last battle between good and evil before the day of judgment. So he wanted to accomplish this through... A race war. So he named this scenario the Helter Skelter after the 1968 Beatles song of the same name. He was really obsessed with the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, so are a lot of people, but I feel like he's taking it to a new level. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that they want a Armageddon named after them. I don't (laughs) think that they really ever asked for that, nor would I think they would be very happy if an Armageddon actually happened and it was named after them. Yeah. That's not what they were looking for, I don't think. (laughs) But he was inspired. (laughs) Okay, interesting. So Manson originally gained his following from the UC Berkeley campus. Manson soon began to attract large crowds of listeners and some dedicated followers. So he targeted people for manipulation who were runaways, you know, social Mm -hmm. outcasts, and emotionally insecure. Which is just, I feel like this is what happened last time. He's just, like, looking for a vulnerable population. Yeah. And Manson attempted to reprogram their minds to submit totally to his will through the use of LSD and unconventional sexual practices Mm -hmm. that would turn his followers into empty vessels that would accept anything he poured. So that's what he, he was trying to do? Yes. Interesting. Um, Yeah, I feel like this is a very common thing in cults. Like, people, obviously people who lead cults are crazy, but they're smart in that they know who to target. Like, they know who to look for. Mm -hmm. People who are looking for some sort of connection, people who are looking for some sort of, like, found family, people who don't really have any social or relationship connections in other ways... Um, those are people that are unfortunately going to be easier to manipulate and easier to kind of bring into your seat, like circle of power. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what he did. Um, and so Manson believed 
ones, African Americans rose up against white people in an end-of-time race war. He and his, quote, family, which consisted of mostly women, the family decided that in order for people to notice the danger of African Americans, they would carry out prominent murders of celebrities and pin them on African Americans so people would take notice. Okay. And like, make it make sense. I feel like there was already and still is enough racism existing in the world today. I don't think that they needed to, like, I don't think that they, their goal, I don't think that people were already treating black people fairly at this time. Yeah. Like, I feel like they they were like, oh, we want people to treat black people unfairly. I'm pretty sure they already were. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think that you need to kill people and pin it on, a, like, on a specific race of people to make people treat yeah. that race unfairly. Like, that I'm pretty sure true, that's already happening. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, so you're gonna commit these murders to show how, like, quote, like, bad these people yeah. are. So aren't you like like what? what? <laughs> yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah. And Manson compelled his followers to believe him by exhibiting many qualities common to gurus and spiritual leaders around the world. And of course also the use of LSD definitely helped mm-hmm. to influence their thinking. And so some of the activities that they did in this Cults, the family cults, mm-hmm. included sexual orgies, hallucinogenic drug trips, and frequent sermons by Manson on the meaning of Beatles music and the what coming the of Walter Skelter. So his entire thing was just basically because he didn't get to be in the Beatles. Like, he wanted to be the fifth <laughs> member of the Beatles, and they he wouldn't did. let him in. And now he's going crazy and... delivering sermons on the Beatles music. (laughs) Apparently the second best thing is to become a cult leader. Yeah, like first choice, his dream job. Like in first grade, he was writing down his dream job. He was like to become part of the Beatles. And they're like, do you have any other options? He's like, cult leader, easy, easy. (laughs) Like I could either become the Beatles or I could start a cult. I haven't decided yet, but I'm going to do one of these things. (laughs) He took one of those, like, tests, those, like, personality tests that you take. And, and like, that's what he got. That's what he got. Leader. Like, his, like, seat partner got, like, a clown. And the person in front of him got, like, a business person. And he got either the fifth <laughs> member of the Beatles or a cult yeah. leader. They couldn't decide. And Manson dominated family life, even to the extent of telling members who they could have sex with. And no one questioned his authority. Many family members seemed even to see Manson as having Christ-like characteristics. Um, where? Right, but I think it's because of all the LSD they were taking. <laughs> A perception Manson encouraged <laughs> by often asking, don't you know who I am? So, like, he would, yeah. like, go along with it. Well, yeah, I... Obviously. Obviously. And... Most of the time, his followers were high on LSD, and Chum, I almost forgot his name, and Charles wasn't. 
So this yeah. is why he appeared to be like this godlike figure because everyone else is like on trips and like, he's just and like, he just like Oh, yeah <laughs> yeah and i feel like it's easy to kind of manipulate things to go in your favor when everybody else is under the influence and you are clear-headed and you can like kind of control the situation in yeah. a sense like i feel like you can definitely control it to make people think you're more powerful than you are or make people think you're more of a influence over your like yeah. surroundings than you are you know and you can trick them to into thinking you have like these powers yeah yeah i think it's yeah it's really easy to kind of manipulate people if they're not in a clear state mm-hmm. of mind like don't they know the effects of lsd at this point <laughs> do they I think, know what they were taking i think they did i think they enjoyed it yeah they just like you know probably didn't ask too many questions no. went along with it and again it's like even if even if they were at this point, I feel like kind of starting to realize that it wasn't a good situation. I feel like for a lot of them, it was almost too late. Like they were already so deep into this. And it's like, I don't know, when you get into those kind of things, like they take all your money, they take all your belongings, like you have nowhere else to go. Like, yeah. yeah. So this is their home now, basically. Yeah. So he and the family traveled across the American West, in an old-school bus for nearly 18 months. The family moved into a series of... How many people were in this family that they were in a bus for 18 months? I would have lost my mind. (laughs) Yeah, it could not be more than 30. That is crazy. That is so... Oh, my God, I can't even sit in a bus for, like, 30 minutes. (laughs) Like, when I went to (laughs) my field trip with all my kids, I was like, oh, my God, get me out of here. Yeah, right? (laughs) Well, they seem to enjoy their family. And <laughs> so after they traveled for 18 months, the family moved into a series of residencies in the Los Angeles area in 1969. Mm-hmm. It was at Spawn Ranch, a ramshackle collection of movie set buildings in the Simi Hills northwest of Los Angeles, where Man- Manson developed his murderer's plan to set off Helter Skelter. So this is the Helter Skelter, and that's what I talked about before mm-hmm. of his like racist ideologies. Mm-hmm. That is called the Helter Skelter. And on August eighth, nineteen sixty nine, Manson set his plan in motion. He said, "Now is the time for Helter Skelter." That evening, he told three female members of the family, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel and Linda Kasabian to get an additional change of clothes, a knife, and a driver's license. Manson discussed details of his plan with the fourth family member, Charles Tex Watson, before all four piled into an old Ford. As it drove away down the driveway of the ranch, Manson stuck his head in the car window and told them to, quote, to leave a sign. He said, you girls know what I mean, something witchy. Although Tex understood his mission fully, the three women knew neither their destination nor that night was destined for murder. Mm-hmm. So they had no idea what they were doing. They just hopped on yeah. this. And he said, do something car. witchy. Yeah. And then they, are, they have a knife, change yeah. of clothes. You know, I feel like uh, they probably could have guessed. I know. I feel like that's <laughs> not really a good... Um, 
Like, oh God, if somebody was like, you're going to go have a fun night, like, here is a knife and a change of clothes, I feel like that's not really setting you up for a good night. Like, no. like that's not really setting you up for success, um, in my opinion, at least. Yeah. I would kindly decline. <laughs> <laughs> Unless we're making a really messy sandwich, then don't know what yeah. else we could be doing. <laughs> Around 45 minutes after midnight on August 9th, the group arrived at the Bel Air residence of famous actress Sharon Tate, who had recently appeared in the movie Valley of the Dolls. Mm-hmm. Tate lived in the home with her husband, director Roman Polanski, who was away in London working on his next film project. Two of Tate's friends, Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frykowski were also mm-hmm. staying in the home, as well as Jay Sabring, a friend of Tate's and a hairstylist. So there's definitely more people than they anticipated there. Yeah, I think um, they had, I feel like I remember hearing that it was like they kind of had like a get together that night because Roman Polanski was out. So like they kind of had a couple of their friends over, right? And yeah. like they were just having like. They had, like, their boyfriend, one of them had their boyfriend over, like, things like that. Yeah. So, the group, after cutting the telephone wires leading to the Tate home, climbed over the fence at the bottom of the property and began making their way up to the hill to the residence. As they approached, a car pulled into the driveway. Tex, one of the family members, quickly moved forward and shot the driver four times through the car window, killing him. So this victim was definitely not planned. I think mm-hmm. they just kind of freaked out. And it, wasn't this like, wasn't it, um, he wasn't even connected to anybody in the house no, in any way, right? he wasn't. It was like a, I forget, I forget, I remember hearing about this, but I forget like exactly what he did, but he, I feel like he wasn't connected in, to any of the victims. Like he didn't know anybody in the house. Yeah, so the first victim, Stephen Parent, was not part of the Tate LaBianca mm-hmm. killings and was in the wrong place at the wrong yeah, time. That's really sad. Yeah. Like that's just like such bad chances yeah, that bad you drive timing. up immediately. Yeah. So while one member, Casabian, waited by the car, the other three entered the Tate home. Soon after, screams could be heard coming from inside. Watson, one of the family members, later described the next four victims as being frantic. And running around the house like headless chickens. Mm-hmm. Overall, the four victims of the Tate La Bianca murders were stabbed a total of 102 times. That's a lot. Yeah. And Sharon Tate was the last to be killed, with Watson stabbing her while Atkins held her down. And Sharon Tate was actually pregnant at this time. I remember that. That was really sad. Yeah. Yeah. I remember listening to that. Yeah, which is just so sad. I know. And later Atkins claimed to have tasted Tate's blood and found it to be warm and sticky. That's sick. And she used Tate's blood to write pig on the porch wall. So this was the message. Right. The following morning, a maid arrived at the Tate residence and discovered the gruesome scene, prompting her to scream about murder, death, bodies, and blood. 
Investigators arrived and found two mutilated bodies, those of Folger and Frykowski, on the lawn outside. Inside, they discovered Tate's bloody pregnant body near a couch in the living room, as well as Jay Sabring's body, which had a rope around his neck and a bloody towel over his face. Damn, imagine... This just sounds horrific. I know. I feel like I can't even imagine, like, what my reaction to, to that would yeah. be. Like, that is this just poor it's lady. so over the top, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it's so... Like, they're almost trying... They are putting on a show. They're trying to, like, put on a show. And they did it with, like, people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. And after all of this, Manson was unhappy with the messiness of the Tate murders and decided to personally participate in the next Helter Skelter mission. Okay. Which was scheduled for that very night. Okay. Uh, like... I feel like... What... You're unhappy that it was so messy. You're not unhappy that you just killed people. Like, that's what you're unhappy about. You didn't, like, look at that and be like, oh, fuck, that was a bad idea. Because I just killed people. He's like, nope, gotta go kill more. No, the thing that made him upset was that it was not good enough for him. It was messy. Yeah. In addition to the four family uh, members from the previous night, Manson was joined by Clem Tufts and Leslie Van Houten. Manson instructed Cassabian to search for potential victims by driving around Los Angeles before ultimately deciding on La Bianca residence. Watson, Krenwinkle, and Van Houten were the killers Manson chose for this mission, and he instructed them not to let the victims know they were going to be killed. So police found Lino La Bianca with a, a knife lodged in his throat, 12 stab wounds, and 7 pairs of fork wounds. The word war had been carved on his stomach, and Rosemary La Bianca was found with multiple stab wounds in her chest and neck, and the words death to pigs and rise were written in blood on their living room wall. And Helter Skelter was written on the refrigerated door. So did they spell it wrong? Is yes. It, yeah, I feel like I remember that. <laughs> At first I thought it was a typo, so I corrected it. Yeah. And then I was like, no, like they They were actually just dumb enough to spell it wrong. <laughs> this was your main message. This was the whole thing. This was your main, this was like the name of your whole day was Helter Skelter. And then you spelled it wrong. Helter Skelter. You had Skelter. like, What? Huh? And this is you coming back to not I know, get messy. This is your whole like, thing. I don't understand. It's like, you did the same thing. Like. Oh my god. <laughs> That's nuts. Like, they were, again, so messy. Yeah. This is why they were able to be quickly caught. caught. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like people like this just think they're so above it all. Like, you know, like, he definitely thought he was, like, the smartest person on planet Earth. Like, he definitely thought, like... He definitely thought he was God, like, himself. Like, mm-hmm. was like, I'm never going to be caught. Like, okay, so those, like, 19 years in jail, like, they were obviously able to catch you for those whatever Penny else you crimes. did. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure if you're going to be even more distra- disastrous with this one, like, they're probably going to be able to catch you with this one also. Yeah. I don't know what he was thinking. Yeah. But. So the arrest. On September 1st, 1969, a 10-year-old boy found a 
22 caliber Longhorn revolver under a bush near his home in Sherman Oaks. So they just kind of like threw mm-hmm. the gun. <laughs> it's like, okay. That's a bunch of funny again. You're like, all right. Yeah. This is a 10 year old boy. Yeah. The LAPD were notified by the boy's parents and picked up the gun, but did not make any connection between it and the Tate murders at that time. Okay. In October, Inyo County officers arrested 24 members of the fa- Manson family, including Charles Manson and Susan Atkins at Barker Ranch, located in a remote area south of Death Valley National Monument on charges of arson and grand theft. Mm-hmm. So this is a different arrest. Oh, but they were still arrested. Yeah, so this is for grand theft different, and arson. Okay, so totally different thing. Yeah, so I just, don't know what they were up to yeah, this before, other time. That was just something they wanted to do yeah. on the down low. <laughs> but detectives found evidence that linked the murders to Manson and his followers, who were part of a cult called the Manson family. Manson and several of his followers were already in custody on unrelated charges when they were connected to the murders. And imagine them being arrested the first time. They're like, oh no, we just got caught for murdering these people. Like, no, you've actually got caught for a completely different thing. But also, and now you're also going to be charged for murdering these people. Yeah. And while housed at Dormitory 8000 in Los Angeles, Atkins told another inmate, Virginia Graham, an unbelievable tale of a beautiful cat named Charles Manson and the murder of Sharon Tate. She expressed no remorse over the killing and even listed celebrities that she and other family members planned to kill in the future. So she didn't even feel bad about it. No. Yeah. I feel like these people I have no sympathy for. I feel like they try and ask for, like, like they try and say they were, like, brainwashed later, but, it's like, like, well, obviously you didn't feel bad about it now, so yeah. I'm not buying it. And Graham's inmate friend, Ronnie Howard, informed the LAPD of Atkins' story. So this is what caused them to be convicted. Is mm-hmm. that one of them told, like, the, Dumb. the other inmate, Dumb. and then you, they told First the LAPD. you spelled this thing wrong. Yeah. The one thing that you think is most important in life, you spell it wrong. Um, and then you're going off and opening your mouth to, like, every single person that walks by. Yeah. Like, you're okay. Just, and this is the thing I feel like I've heard a lot of, like, murders do mm-hmm. is they talk about their crimes because they can't help it yeah it's because they they're proud of it off. like they yeah. want the attention of people knowing it was them like they don't want to do it in mm-hmm. secret because then they think well what's the point of doing it if people don't know it was me like what's the point of you know yeah yeah and <sighs> another reason why they were caught around the same time Detectives on La Bianca case interviewed Al Springer, a member of the Straits um, Satan Bikers group that Manson had attempted to recruit into the family. Mm-hmm. Springer told detectives that Manson had bragged to him in August at Spawn Ranch about knocking off five people and that the Tate killers had written something about pigs on the refrigerator in blood. Danny DiCarlo, another member of the Straits um, Satan, Satan's told police that a Manson family member had bragged, we got five piggies, and that Manson had asked him what to use to decompose a body. Interesting. So it's like, he 
They told you somebody told, else. You told you're just telling everybody everything. Yeah. Right now. Yeah, you would think that they would try and keep it a little bit more on the down low if they were trying to, especially to because it. they were trying to pin this on a completely different person. Like it wasn't like they were like, "Oh, we are going to become this like terrorist group in America, and so we want to spread fear about us." Mm-hmm. No, they were trying to comp- pin this on a completely different, like on a whole other race of. Person, why are yeah. you telling people about your plan if you're trying to pin this on somebody totally different? Exactly. Don't you think somebody would come forward and be like, um, no, this guy actually told me that it was his plan from the very beginning. Like, <laughs> what? And I don't understand, like, how they were supposed to know. Was it just the reference to, yeah, like, pigs? I don't know. Like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that's That actually makes no sense. Yeah. yeah, that's the third reason they're dumb because like, okay. how are they? How, how are people, normal people, were supposed to like make this connection? Yeah, yeah, that makes no sense. And on November eighteenth, nineteen sixty nine, the district attorney and his staff selected Vincent uh, Bugliosi to be the chief prosecutor in the Tate LaBianca case, based on his impressive record of winning winning one hundred and three convictions in one hundred and four felony trials. Wow, that's pretty I good. Know. 103 like, out of 104? Like, that's, that's unheard like, of. Yeah, let me check what percent that is. It's like close to 99. That's like 99. 99. Yeah. Yeah. That's, exactly 99? Well, 99, like 0.9903846 oh, <laughs> Pretty much 99%. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. So He's a rock star. Mm-hmm. The LAPD eventually identified the five people who participated in the actual Tate and LaBianca murders based on Ronnie Howard's account of Susan Atkins, Atkins jailhouse confession and interviews conducted with various Manson family members. Mm-hmm. The five suspects consisted of the four women, mm-hmm. all in their early 20s and one man in his mid-20s. So this was everybody that was there. Mm-hmm. Susan Atkins, Patricia, Leslie, Linda... And Charles. Okay. Also known as Tex. Knowing that conventions of at least some defendant would require testimony from one of those persons present at the murders, the DA's office first reached a deal with the attorney for Susan Atkins. Yeah, I feel like you definitely need a like insider witness to mm-hmm. kind of prove that all of these people are there because it would have been really, really difficult for them to prove that without like DNA didn't exist back then like they couldn't have been like oh well we found your fingerprints and your fingerprints and your fingerprints you know I feel like it would have been almost impossible to do that without an insider witness I mean a deal like I feel like it sucks because then that person's not getting what they like they should be getting because they're obviously gonna give them less time in return for getting a deal but I guess if that's what it takes to kind of convict all these other people then it has to happen Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I kind of wonder, like, what, what made them choose her? Mm-hmm. Maybe she was, like, the most, they thought she was the most likely like, to crack. Like, not involved. Yeah. Or, yeah, to crack, too. Yeah. Or, like, had the most, I guess. Because she's the one who, like, accident not accidentally, but who told the inmate. Yeah, so they're probably, like, this dumb so bitch. Like, like, she just, like, told done. everybody, like, she tells everybody who she opens her mouth and she tells people. So she'll probably tell us, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like that. She's like, she's the dumbest person here. Like, everybody else is like, don't talk. She's like, guess what I did last Friday? Like, Yeah. So I can see it now. Yeah. So as a promise, like, 
for her confession. They're not going to try the death penalty in return mm-hmm. for her testimony before the grand jury, plus consideration of a further reduction in charges mm-hmm. for her continued cooperation during the trial. Yeah. Atkins appeared before the grand jury on December 5th, describing the events in the early morning hours of August 9th at the Tate residence in an emotionless voice. So, again, yeah. like... It doesn't really seem like she feels that bad about it. No remorse. Yeah. The state of California tried Manson for the Tate and LaBianca murders with co-defendants Leslie Van Houten, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel. Co-defendant Tex Watson was tried at a later date after being extradited from Texas. The trial began on July 15, 1970. Manson appeared wearing fringe buckskins, his typical clothing at Spawn Ranch. Okay, not cute. Yeah. Not, I don't really know what I was expecting but. out of his typical clothing, but I feel like that wasn't a good look. Ugh. I don't really feel like a lot of people can pull that off. No. And especially him. No. I don't think he could pull it off. And on July 24th, 1970, the first day of testimony, Manson appeared in court with an X carved into his forehead. His followers issued a statement for Manson saying, quote, I have X'd myself from your world, quote. I don't think it worked because you're still here. <laughs> what? So, Can what do I you... do that? <laughs> I don't want to go to work today, so I'm actually going to X myself out. from the world. And I don't want to do anything to plan for work, so I'm going to X myself out. Like, it does not work like that. Yeah, I'm Sorry. pretty sure you're pretty detached from reality. <laughs> like, um, okay, and? Like, you're still here, so yeah. we still have to deal with you. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and the following day, all of the co-defendants, like, Atkins, Van Mm Heeuwen, they all appeared with an X carved in their forehead. These people are probably so over it. Like, Like, stop following him. You're literally going to be convicted. I know. You would think at this point they're like, maybe we should not. But I feel like it's still at this point they were like, believe that they were going to get away with it, you know? Like, they probably thought that they were going to. Maybe they're still all in. Yeah, they were, so. Except for Susan. Yeah. That's because she's... But she also came to came in with... Well, that's because she has an IQ of about two, yeah. obviously. So <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything different from Susan. And the other members of the Manson family camped outside of the courthouse and held a vigil on a street corner because they were excluded from the courtroom for being disruptive. Okay. <laughs> And on March 29th, 1971, the jury sentenced all four defendants to death. When the female defendants were led into the courtroom, each of them had shaved their heads, as had Manson. For what like, reason? Like, I don't what? get it. Like, for what reason? I really don't understand it. After hearing the sentence, Atkins shouted to the jury, Better lock your doors and watch your kids. Okay, who are they locking against? Like, you're, lo- you're in prison. You think you're going to escape? Like, why are it's, you saying that? It's because they X their foreheads. They're like, uh, they you actually can't, can't look us off. <laughs> we don't exist in this earthly realm anymore. Okay. Yeah, and the Manson murder trial was actually one of the longest murder trials in American history when it occurred, lasting nine and a half months. That is like, pretty long. Wow. That is pretty long. Yeah, so there's so much information mm-hmm. on this case. And 
The trial was also among the most publicized American criminal cases of the 20th century and was um, oh, called Trial of the Century. Yeah. The jury had been sequestered for 225 days longer than any jury before it. Like, imagine being on that jury. Imagine being... I'd be exhausted. <laughs> imagine getting a call to go on jury duty, and then you show up to jury duty, you're already getting paid, I think it's like $7 a day, like, you're not even yeah, getting... like, nothing. You're not even getting paid enough to pay for parking at wherever you're supposed to be going. No. And then you show up, and you walk into this courtroom, and then you see that the people you are supposed to be on the jury for have all put X's into their foreheads, and the women have shaved their heads. And you're like, oh my god, like, these the people are freaking nut jobs. On. Like, yeah. and this is what I'm getting paid seven dollars a day to do, and it's, I have to do it for two hundred twenty-five <laughs> days. And then, and then you end that day. You're like, oh, this will probably be over, like one and done. And the judge is like, well, actually, you have to stay here for the next two hundred twenty-five days. I would go nuts. I would shave my head and cover an yeah. into my forehead at that point. That is just too much. Yeah, that's too much. That's so long. And the trial transcript alone ran to 209 volumes, or... Books? 31,716 pages. Oh my god, and I thought writing 40 pages is a lot last year for a thesis paper, and that's something I actually cared about. Like, imagine writing, imagine sitting there and having to write... 31,000 pages? No. That poor whoever was typing it. Yeah. And, and, like, you probably have to type every dumb thing that they said. Like, they probably said so yeah, many annoying right? things. And just imagining, like, better like, lock your doors and watch your kids. Yeah, That's like, some poor person had to write that, like, in the book. Like, they had to type that down. And they were probably rolling their eyes, like, to the back of their head when they were mm-hmm. writing that down. Yeah. And the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional in 1972. So Manson was resentenced to life with the possibility of parole Mm -hmm. his initial death sentence was modified to life on february 2nd 1977 and so he was in in jail actually they never gave him parole and he passed away on november 19th 2017 in a hospital in kern county california he died of natural causes and he was 83 years old i feel like i don't remember that happening like I, I feel like I feel like that would have made the news. It definitely did make the news. Like him dying. Oh, passing away. Yeah, but I feel I like I do not remember it. that this is happening. Like pretty recent. Like I know. That's like when we were in like sophomores in college. Like yeah. I was definitely like aware of things that were happening and like going on, but I do not remember that happening. Yeah, because that is very recent for something like that to happen. Mm-hmm. And that is the case of Charles Manson. Well, I guess tomorrow I'm going to show up to work and I'm not, I'm going to put an X on my forehead. I'm going to say, I don't want to teach today. And, and then the next day, everybody else is going to put an X yeah, on their head. Yeah. And, and then, shave their heads. And shave my head, obviously. <laughs> shave my head. I forgot that important plot point. Yeah. And we're going to see how that works out for me. Because I'm going to guess not, know. I'm not going to guess not very well. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I feel like that is a pretty high-profile case, but... Yeah, like, to not really hear about it on the news yeah. is odd. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's an important one, because I think it was one of the first cases 
that kind of was so highly publicized and was like people were like in love with him right like he had like so many like people didn't didn't he have like people showing up for his trial that were like obsessed with him and didn't think he was gonna do it yeah like I feel like this was like definitely kind of the thing that sparked my case for this week I feel like a, a lot of like at the end of it all like once he gets put in prison a lot of he got a lot of like female admirers and it was like very highly publicized Mm -hmm. like I just I feel like this was probably one of the first ones that was so like made the news in such like a drastic way yeah you know and even just people who are fans of him like outside of California started to like make songs about him yeah and yeah yeah, I feel like just references to him yeah it was definitely, I think, a turning point in, like, how people viewed kind of crime. Yeah. Like, you should have just stuck to music. Like, okay, maybe this guy didn't. It didn't maybe, work out, but. Maybe. You could have even joined a Beatles cover else. band, okay? Yeah. Do you know how successful cover bands can be? Especially for the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, come on. Like, didn't you go see, what did you go see, a Fleetwood Mac cover band? Yeah. They're making they a so lot of money. Good. They're touring everywhere. Like, he could have done that. He could have had his choice of which Beatle he wanted to be. John, Paul, Ringo, <laughs> George. He could have been any of them. You know? Yeah. He, and, no, this is what he chooses instead? Not impressed. <laughs> well... Thank you um, for listening. Thank you. And we will catch you on the next episode. Yeah.